0: Hello, and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis, and today's guest is Shane O'Day. Shane O'Day, Professor of English and Public Orator at Memorial University, has long been involved with the preservation movement in Newfoundland. He was one of the founding directors and an early chair of the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador, and was involved in the early years of the St. John's Heritage Foundation and the Newfoundland Historic Trust. He also sat as chair of the Heritage Canada Foundation. Shane has served on countless boards and associations and was recognized for his efforts in preserving heritage with the Lieutenant Governor's Award in 1990. Shane, welcome to the show. Thank you, Del. Thank you for coming in. I, I in particular, wanted to have a chat with you today about the early years of the heritage conservation movement in in St. John's. Uh, I think sometimes we... We do a good job of preserving the buildings, but we don't necessarily preserve some of that corporate knowledge about how how we've kind of come to where we are today. So I'm wondering if, to start off with, you can kind of set the stage for us. It's maybe the late 1960s. What was the scene in St. John's with regards to heritage conservation at that time?
1: Very, very limited. There had been some concerns expressed in the 50s about demolitions of buildings such as um, the Gazette building, a wonderful building where the Bank of Montreal is now on Water Street, and um, <clears throat> Fort Amherst, Fort Townsend, um, and eventually into the early 60s, St. Mary's Church in the West End. So when there was a prospect of the little Christ Church in Kitty Vitty disappearing, and with it, as people saw it then, probably the whole village itself. It would be sort of suburban over. The trust w- began, started by people like Edith Goodrich, Bill Geen, Shani Duff, a host of people concerned, and a broad range of people um, were were involved in the movement at the time. They got together and they persuaded the Anglicans to turn the church over to them, and they began the preservation of the building. Now, their ideas about preservation at that time were um, restricted, shall we say. Mm -hmm. They thought it might be workable as a small museum or as a tea shop, something along those lines. It never really became any of those things. It went the process of becoming a uh, small shop, a community development area under old extension services, and now is a private house.
0: So for people who who may not be familiar with Christchurch, what is its importance in the architectural history of the province?
1: Well, it's a very small church. It was designed, though, by... Purcell, who um, designed the colonial building, who had a hand in a number of the ecclesiastical buildings around town, designed an early version of the Anglican Cathedral. And it was supposed to be a small cruciform church. Never quite turned out fully that way and was modified over time. But what it was, it was part of a wonderfully preserved, small, early to mid-19th century village. And it really was the the keystone mm-hmm. to keeping that heritage area intact
0: right yeah so the uh, what what was the situation like with the the province and the city hall in terms of regulations or, or government approaches to to dealing with issues like this? Did, did did the things that we have today, like bylaws and whatnot, were they in place at that point? They didn't
1: exist. Okay, nothing nothing at all existed then. Yeah. There was the Historic Sites, Objects, and Records Act of the provincial government, which was fairly stringent with regard to certain things. But if you wanted to building and a site protected the government had to declare it an historic site take it over and run it and that has you know always posed problems i mean they they can't have too many of them because they can't manage too many of them they have enough difficulty managing those they have let alone reaching out into other ones so that's what happened in this case the trust had to be created and then step in and take over
0: right so the trust uh, was the trust engaged in in the work of actually doing building preservation at that point, or, or was it more kind of about regulation? And
1: the trust was it was trying to do everything really, right, okay. but it it was being built from the ground upwards, starting in nineteen sixty six, yeah, and then the following year in sixty seven, when the commissariat was also going to be disposed of by the Anglicans, they stepped in there and persuaded the federal government to take that over as an historic house. And there was where a governmental body did step in, and a very full job was done on that. Trained a whole bunch of people in the historic preservation trade across Canada at Mm. the time. They used to come floating through working on the building.
0: I didn't realize that that had been a federal project. Yes, and fully was. And then at some point it then became a provincial historic site. Yes,
1: and that's what I'm suddenly forgetting. Yes, it is now a provincial historic site, but it is a federally designated building.
0: right. Yeah. So the federal the federal mm. office, the the Historic Sites and Monuments Board at that point was still very uh, engaged. Yes. And and there had been this work that had had been done with the Canadian Inventory of Historic Buildings. Did that, did now, that come after? that uh, comes
1: a bit after. A bit after that. that. It's okay. interesting, Jacques Dalibar who was in charge of technical services yes. at Parks Canada, who was very important in the commissariat's development, was also partly responsible with his partner Meredith Sykes then for developing the Canadian Inventory Historic Building. But that doesn't really startle about a year or so later well certainly not into the early until the early 70s right and before heritage canada is you know announced by jean chrétien when he was minister of northern affairs
0: right so we have these two very important buildings that kind of are the are the catalyst that gets things get things moving so there are buildings under threat and the trust is kind of formed as a response to the threats against those buildings and then what happened next? What so those those buildings there was kind of a process to preserve those buildings what was happening beyond those, those Okay. Areas?
1: Well then almost simultaneously in 7172 there's the announcement that 20 story building will be built on the site of the old ear's store on Water Street Atlantic Place. Right. And it produces an extraordinary coalition of groups. The trust is concerned about the potential impact on the downtown of massive high rise because that was the that was the vision in City Hall at the time. Right. Outside the trust, there were anti poverty groups, local community planning groups that were very concerned about the impact on social housing in the downtown. And these two groups got together, the preservationists and the activists got together and and created a small group called Citizens for Responsible Planning and began to develop a whole series of papers which pointed out the incredible tax concessions Atlantic Place would receive, its impact on the downtown, wind studies were done, light studies were done. The citizens developed a whole new vocabulary of building uh, technology and the building trades and planning to uh,
0: vocabulary as well. Mm. There's a fabulous photo that is float is floating around in one of the archives here of, uh, of a protest that was held on on Water Street in those days and there's a, a photo of someone I think marching a coffin down the street in protest against an Atlantic Place. So you're kind of in this era uh, mm. globally an era of political activism yes. Did you see yourself in that way? Did you think of yourself at that point as a political activist or were you or you uh, a heritage a heritage nut? no, it was you know? not,
1: it was definitely a combination of the two things. Yeah. The, the people in the trust were concerned about both. and in fact, there's a very interesting series of resolutions passed, I think in seventy four which lay out the agenda for the trust, which involves social housing, area preservation, as well. And the two are to be bought together in a a combined process. And then that does happen slowly in about I'm trying to think now probably 75, 76, 77 in the run-up to the development of the St. John's Heritage Foundation, the group that were involved in Citizens for Responsible Planning. Engineered a coup in which they took over the local community planning association, which tended to be sort of pretty resistant to any interference with commercial interests, as, by the way, had the Newfoundland Historical Society, which is why the trust was created and worker preservation wasn't done by the Historical Society, because again, they were too tied in with the, the lawyers,
0: sure, the yeah.
1: property owners, and the rest of it. So, the merchant
0: class, yes. The
1: merchant class, yeah. although, you know, some of the others were presumably of the merchant class or the middle class, but uh, there, was a, there was a tug, yeah. and it was a generational tug. You know, it was a a difference in an age group. The 30- and the 40-year-olds were resisting the 40-
0: to the 60-year-olds. Yeah. So I wanted to ask them what, and you've kind of led into this, what was the political atmosphere like in in St. John's? What was the the council of the day? What was their response to these heritage issues? The mayor of the day, Bill Adams,
1: had struck from the city act the ancient lights provision, which meant that you could have, you could be assured of light falling on your building at some stage of the day. Now, this was designed not to provide sun tanning light. Okay. Let's be clear. Pointless in St. John's anyway. But, <laughs> um, it was designed to provide actually daylight so that people could work. Right. But that was struck directly for Atlantic Place and it's gone now could be reinstituted, but it is at the moment gone. So there's the view of council. Council where they saw jobs, they saw tax dollars, but hey, they gave away the parking garage, they gave away all this real estate, they gave tax concessions to Andy Crosby, the developer. It was pretty appalling. And and in the provincial house, our Lord and Master John Crosby, who was Minister of Finance at the time, said... Uh, Patronage was a fact of life, and they weren't going to interfere with that.
0: Right, yeah. All of this sounds very familiar for some reason. You know, have, we, have we come that far in terms of how we deal with heritage?
1: Well, I'm not too sure at the present moment who the full-scale demons are. But, <laughs> for example, you may recall about, is it three years ago, we laid the ghost of Fortis. To a degree. Fortis changed its mind on a most incredibly hideous development at the corner of Prescott and Water and Job's Cove. They put that aside, and they moved to the west end to a highly eligible site, places where the plan had suggested they should go in the first place, where an arterial road would pile into their building, and they built a much better designed building. It's tall, admittedly, it's a high-rise, but it takes up... The need for office space in the current climate, we thought it was five years, maybe in the current climate it'll be 10 years.
0: Yes, yeah, and that takes a bit of development pressure off those historic the, buildings of the downtown Yes
1: definitely okay. does. But we still have our problems. Yes. But you can come back to that at the end of yeah. the interview if you want to progress along <laughs> historically.
0: <laughs> it be a four-part interview. Yeah. Uh, you, you mentioned this other organization that uh, that then came into, into being, which was the St. John's Heritage Foundation, which in some ways was the precursor to the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland yes. and Labrador. So what was that organization, and how did it differ from the trust? Okay. It came into
1: being to develop the St. John's Heritage Conservation Area. It was a child of several parents. So it's parentage is a bit dubious. Um, a child of the province, which provided money of Heritage Canada. I think the Fed there's federal money in there as well, and it definitely have very Firm city support by that time. Because what had happened was several developments had gone off the the, the drawing boards. Mm-hmm. The TriSec development, a multi unit high rise development on Gower Street, disappeared. Atlantic Place cut more than in half. Nothing was happening. The city was desperate. Preservation presented one means of potential development. And the city came on board, supported the heritage regulations, supported the development thing. In fact, when I went down to negotiate the boundaries of the heritage conservation area, which was pretty tight and small at that time, it was city councilors who suggested, well, you need to move out a little bit to the west, don't you, and bring in the old block and all that. And I said, yes, of course we do. <laughs> yes, and yeah, we did. We'll take it, yeah. And it then grew at Topsy. But the St. John's Heritage Foundation, with Heritage Canada funding, started to fix up, acquire, restore, and put back on the market derelict houses in principally the Victoria Street, Gower Street area. Mm-hmm. That area bound by Victoria, Gower, and Cathedral. That was the first area they worked in. And the impact of it was Quite incredible because this is at the time when St. John's had the deadliest palette of colors Indian red, chromium green, occasional gray, white that had turned gray, and a color called matchless number nine, which is a kind of umber color. Right, no trim, no brackets trimmed, Just no windows, a single, trimmed.
0: single color, pink
1: single color, pink. and why because I think. After the fire in '92, you're rolling into the fall. You finish the building and clad it in,
0: and you slap as much paint as you and can you, before uh, winter. Yeah, yeah. and they
1: never repainted them again.
0: Yeah, interesting. You yeah. know, so so what yeah. we see today, you know, in terms of the colors that we that are so much a part of our new tourism promotion That's and whatnot, right. that really didn't exist before no. that Saint John's Heritage Foundation. Well,
1: it did exist on houses out in the country where people had the time and the money and the interest to do it, but it didn't happen down in, Saint, in downtown St. John's at the time
0: after the fire. Right. So who was doing that work? Who was doing the work of the Heritage Foundation? Who were the players at that the, point?
1: The principal players, you know, Shanny was the secretary of the St. John's Heritage Foundation. Yep. Louis Ayer was the chair. Paul Johnson was very involved with it. Charles Cullum, people like that. Beaton Shepherd and Philip Pratt had done the plan for the area. Mm-hmm. And um, the executive director of the foundation was somebody who had been here before, David Weber. He'd come back to us from King's Landing in New Brunswick. And it was he who developed the color palette. Right. Not strict preservation, but by God, it worked. People began to look at the downtown. You know, whereas once, what, well, formerly... Uh, a cabinet minister said, What do you want to see the harbor for anyway? And suddenly everybody was coming down to look at it. People were interested. And for every house that the foundation fixed up in the first four years, three others were fixed up by private money. The spin off effect was incredible and mm-hmm. it kept it going until 1981 and the building of T.D. Place and the defection of the fa- finance chairman of the foundation, Harold Duffett, to the dark side. <laughs> what
0: happened then? What was...
1: Well, then, Then you know, it, it's this is a, what, 12, 15-story building yeah. stuck right to the corner of Prescott and Duckworth. Yes. And it just... And it cut right across a major view plane to the harbor. It had an incredibly deleterious effect. The government actually backed off at that point. Um, that was Peckford's government it would have been, Cabot Martin, people like that. They saw that this is, people are not backing it, the council's not backing it. Um, Dorothy Wyatt was mayor, Andy was a member, Andy Wells was a an offensive member of the council at the time. And they approved this building. And there was a big fight about yep. it, but they approved the building, it went up, and the business people on the St. John's Heritage Foundation sort of folded in on themselves and the thing was wound down, closed out.
0: Yeah. And so, so the St. John's Heritage Foundation ended early 80s. Early 80s, 81, yeah. Yeah. 82. And then how did that then translate into the, the Heritage Foundation of, of Newfoundland and Labrador, which had a much more provincial focus?
1: Well, then we began agitating for a need for a Newfoundland, Labrador-wide heritage foundation, which took into a much broader range of things. And the government was interested in it and slowly worked towards it. And the ADM at the time, Bill Frost, I think sequestered a million dollars the government had been given for some project but hadn't used – uh, come home here no wasn 't that something like that, mm-hmm. and it got slowly filtered into the foundation for development and then a uh, chalker who is now the e d of the heritage foundation um, came into the foundation and began to carefully use the money quite well so that it got it managed to survive you know various government crunches like yes, the terrible yeah. crunch in the late. Eighties, early nineties, under the Wells government, um, and it survived that. But its concern then became, principally, particularly in the first five years, architecture in
0: the outports. Yeah, because you know, while things were happening in St John's, there wasn't a lot that was happening in terms of government preservation beyond beyond St John's. Trinity, Trinity, Trinity
1: the only case they yeah. were doing a lot of work in Trinity, but. Otherwise, everywhere else was not be, and nobody had the idea of ye- developing what is now the ubiquitous bed and breakfast right, so there was no commercial development of buildings for heritage purposes, nor much private
0: right yeah, and you were you were starting to see some fairly important uh rural pieces of art architecture start to to disappear you know i'm thinking of like the Carter premises Carter premises in Neck, neck. but
1: know. but the one that really broke my heart was the loss of the Earl premises in Fogo. in
0: Fogo yeah
1: Earl premises in Fogo should have been the place where the fishery was commemorated i know they had done a wonderful job at Ryan's but the Earl premises was older more varied and more interesting yeah and that got torn down while i was on the historic sites and monuments board the summer of 86 hmm. they approved the Rhine premises in 87 Right, yeah
0: and it's interesting because around that time, you know, the Heritage Foundation came into being, the act came into effect in, in 1985 and I think one of the first buildings that the foundation did work on was Bleak House in Fogo. Yes. So there was some some interest in work on Fogo Island at that point but but obviously there were things that were lost as well. Yes
1: yeah. and, and everywhere around, you know although interestingly enough uh, we did a little sort of Tally of this, most people know the book Ten Historic Towns, that collection of uh, images of significant buildings. I think eighty plus percent of them have been saved, mm-hmm. and that's you know a good record. Yes, and there's some similar record for gift of heritage, the one that was done on St. John's.
0: Yeah, uh, which is it's interesting. You know, the the city is currently kind of re- relooking at uh, at their list of of potentially designatable buildings, and I think they're using work that you had done uh, years and years ago, yeah. seventy seven. Um, one of the buildings that's in a, a gift of heritage that I think is quite fascinating is the Julia Baird House. Yeah, uh, you know, up up off off Duckworth was that Henry Henry, Henry Street Henry, Henry yeah. Street. Yeah, and and so there are these little gems in yeah. in Saint John's that still uh, are unprotected. You know, even even all these years later, mm. uh, and and we wonder what the current climate is like because we have seen some losses in the last couple of years. Well, look Saint at John's.
1: Quinnipiac on Winter Avenue. Yeah, taken down in minutes with a bulldozer's claw. Yeah. Right. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And look at the state of that very important other building, Richmond Hill, up on Shaw Street, Uh, 1844, 45, 46. Wonderful building, very fine interior, and that's being neglected entirely, and nothing is being done about
0: that. Yeah, and I've heard rumors of Bryn Mawr uh, being under threat as well, which is a fabulous, uh, fabulous Queen Anne style Queen Anne's building. Yeah, you know, so there's certainly still work to be done in in the province. Looking back, you know, what do you think the greatest successes have been in in the heritage conservation movement? Um,
1: the number of buildings that have been preserved in St. John's and the definitely the attitude towards reusing buildings in St. John's have been absolutely critical. The fact that buildings have become the one of the lead points in the government's tourism mm-hmm. development strategy, particularly under the Williams government. Uh, that's really important. We're, we're there. We've done that. We've convinced people. But not enough that they seem to carry it on into other areas. The other wonderful thing that's been done is the Bonavista Historic Townscape Project, where um, the Bradleys and the people out there have... Gotten local people to get involved in the preservation of their own houses and buildings, as well as restored and reworked a whole series of buildings in a very important town. Mm-hmm. Now one of the you know weaknesses of the movement has been that very commonly it has been people from outside the province come from a ways who have fixed up all these houses. People, you know, like some people we know, for example. Um, But those people have done the work. They put the money in. They preserved the buildings.
0: Yeah. I think it's interesting, you know, you mentioned Trinity as being one of these uh, communities that had very early work done uh, just down the road from Bonavista. Two very different communities. Oh, totally. Very, very different communities. And and a very different approach to conservation in in some ways. You know, Trinity is this beautiful... You know, postcard perfect uh, view of uh, almost a fanciful view of of uh, Newfoundland heritage in a in a way. Uh, Bonavista, I always find interesting because it's a it's a living, working community. Yes. And you go into Trinity in November, and there's nobody there. You go into Bonavista; it's still a living town with living people. And the heritage buildings are are part of a vibrant community, which I think is uh, is is key to to keeping buildings you know usable in, in communities. people yeah, have well, to live there.
1: Yes, and and you must. Both people must want to live in the buildings and they must want to work in the buildings and there must be the opportunity for them to do both. Uh, Trinity is really quite beautiful. Yes. But it is a showtown. Yeah. Preserved in Aspic.
0: Yeah. Is there a a place in the province that you think is uh, underappreciated or that should should have some more work done architecturally in terms of its preservation?
1: There would be, in my mind, two. Grand Bank. Mm Mm-hmm. Lots of work's been done there, but it could slip easily. And another one, a smaller town, King's Cove.
0: Oh, okay, yes. You know,
1: quite a wonderful little vista down and out the bay, houses folding down a hill into the cove itself.
0: Yeah. King's Cove is a lovely, a lovely spot. And there are some real gems in that community. Yeah, there are yeah. too, yeah. yeah. And and I find Grand Bank to be a fascinating a fascinating place. You know, we don't really have many communities in the province that have a main street, you know, r- yeah. rural communities that have a main street. And, and Grand Bank does. Grand yeah. Bank has this fabulous collection of of, of um, uh, commercial vernacular buildings and also a very impressive collection of residential kind of Whoa, Queen, Queen Anne style. Queen Anne style. Amazing collection of buildings. Yeah, Grand and those,
1: those are great. But the other one, actually I forget to mention, which is really crucial, Harbour Grace. Yes. And, you know, that had some prospects about uh, 25 years ago uh, developing it but they they and while we haven't lost too many buildings out there a lot of them are in a parlor state you look at ridley hall that magnificent stone building yes yeah and just you know um the council once had a mind out there i don't know what's happened to it in the last <laughs> generation
0: yes yeah it is it is a shame i, I always find uh harbor grace uh an interesting town to drive through because there is such a richness there in terms of its uh, landscape, its cultural landscape, and, and its, its uh, building stock. Fabulous. You know, one of the only places in the province where we have really good stonework. Yes. And uh, it is a bit of a gem, and it seems to be a bit of a faded gem well, at the moment. Yeah,
1: you've got all those wonderful stone walls along Water Street. You've got two magnificent churches, two wonderful stone buildings, and a lot of really fine timber, wooden timber frame buildings. But they are intending as I understand it, to expand the shipyard down there. And literally, that'll be the high rise in Harbor Grace. Well, uh, that could be very bad. You know, I I wish they could find... Yes, industry is needed in Harbor Grace, but if they could find some way of balancing the two.
0: It seems to be this constant battle between, you know... uh, uh, con- the conservation side of things and this and this desire for economic development and there has to be a better way to kind of integrate those two But together.
1: conservation is economic development there mr Jarvis
0: there you go well that's probably a a, a good as place to, <laughs> to end our end our conversation thanks it's been it's been really uh it's been a great uh, opportunity to have you come in and have a chat about okay. this uh, early ancient history, history. <laughs> thank you mr Jarvis. <laughs> And, you know, and I just want to say, you know, thank you for all the work that you've done over the okay. years. You know, you've really been a, a really vocal mm. proponent of heritage. And I think a lot of what has happened wouldn't, wouldn't have happened without your, your voice kind of there to urge it on forward. Driven to it. Driven to it. Thank you very much for coming in. So you've been listening to Living Heritage on CHMR. CHMR Radio is one of our co-producers. It's uh, produced in cooperation with the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador's Intangible Cultural Heritage Office. You can find us online at ichblog.ca or on iTunes. Thank you for listening.